You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 10. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. In this episode of the podcast, we're talking with Boise State University Associate Professor Jen Forby. Jen has been working with the greater sage grouse as a study species since 2008, and she has a unique and fascinating perspective on the importance of conserving this emblematic bird. Now, as you know, if you've been staying up to date with the podcast, we have dedicated the month of January to an examination of the greater sage grouse and its conservation. By the time you hear this, our short documentary entitled Greater Sage Grouse, Emblem of the American West, will have been released as a part of our companion Eyes on Conservation video podcast, and we'll be hearing from the director of this new film, Tatiana Gettleman, in another episode this month. Now, part of the reason we selected this first month of 2015 to focus on the issues surrounding greater sage-grouse conservation is that 2015 is the year that this species will come up for review under the Endangered Species Act. Back in 2010, it was determined that the greater sage-grouse warranted listing as a part of the Endangered Species Act. However, it was precluded from listing because it was determined that other species facing more grave extinction threats should take priority. This created quite a bit of controversy, and this controversy is expected to come to a head during 2015 as the species comes up for review under the Endangered Species Act once again. Now, much of the controversy surrounding the greater sage-grouse involves disagreements over what is causing the bird's decline. It is very well documented that the population has been in steady decline over the past several decades, However, it has proven to be quite difficult to determine what the driving factors are behind these declines. Today's guest, Jen Forby, actually studies a component of sage-grouse physiology that could be playing a crucial role in the species' decline, but it is something that very few sage-grouse experts and land managers are thinking about right now. I don't want to leave everybody in suspense for too long, so we're just going to jump right into this interview, and I'm going to let Jen explain why her research on sage-grouse is so important. Associate Professor of Biology at Boise State University, Jen Forby, here in her office. How are you today, Jen? I'm good, thanks. Great. So we're here to talk a little bit about sage-grouse, which is one of the species that you focus on in your research. Um, So the first thing I'm going to ask is just how you first became interested in the greater sage-grouse as a study species. Yeah, so I, I actually read about them while doing my PhD at University of Utah, And um, they're a fascinating animal because, so what I'm interested in is the chemical arms race between organisms. So plants make chemicals to keep things from eating it, plant from eating them, um, and then animals want to overcome those defenses. And so sage-grouse are one of these pretty amazing limited number of of herbivores that um, feed on very, very toxic plants. And and it's 100% of their diet, which is the amazing part. So here you have a bird um, that has to fuel all these needs. And first of all, he's getting that fuel from a plant, and that plant has hundreds of different chemicals in it that are telling that animal, don't eat me. And they have circumvented this this sort of chemical defense uh, system of these plants. And so to me, that's what's fascinating about them and that that's why I got interested in working on them. 
Cool. So uh, it, it sounds like is this this sort of like a the, I mean, talk about the general scope of of your research and some, maybe some of the other species that that you focus on and uh, sort of where the sage grouse fits in uh, to this big picture of your sort of. Uh, study goals or research okay. goals. Also, I've worked on mostly mammalian herbivores. So I've worked with little wood rats. They're sort of little rodents that you know, steal people's you know keys and stuff. And but they also eat very toxic plants. I've worked with brush-tailed possums and koalas um, in Australia, New Zealand, um, and I work with pygmy rabbits. So since moving to Idaho and taking the job at Boise State, I started working on pygmy rabbits, which are <clears throat> one of three animals that feed primarily on sagebrush. So again, 100% of their diet especially in the wintertime, is sagebrush. And so I've worked with pygmy rabbits. Sage grouse are the other one, and pronghorn or, or antelope are the, are the third species that feed on the sagebrush. And so sagebrush has tons of chemical defenses. Um, it doesn't want to be eaten. Most things don't eat it. That's why there's so much of it. Um, but these three organisms, sage grouse, pygmy rabbits, and pronghorn, have found ways to eat this plant. Um, and so what we try and do is understand... First, why is sagebrush using all these chemicals? What do those chemicals do? And then what are the mechanisms that these um, herbivores use, these wildlife use, to overcome that? And so it's both behavioral and physiological mechanisms. So the behavioral side is how do they find the plants and then avoid them if they do this, right? And so does the sort of chemical profile and concentration out there in the field uh, explain where they use their habitats, where they feed, where they go, where they spend their time. Um, and then second of all, when they do find a plant and they eat it, how do they deal with now this sort of in ingestion of all these chemicals? And so that's the physiological part that we work on. Gotcha. Very neat. Very neat. And I love that. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating to me that, that there are, I mean, like you said, only these three species um, that that really rely as sort of a central part of their diet mm -hmm. on uh, consuming um, the leaves of the sagebrush plant, right. um, which I don't, you know, uh, the pronghorn antelope and and the greater sage grouse. I mean, these are two species that are sort of these uh, uh, very emblematic of the Great Basin ecosystem mm -hmm. and you know sagebrush habitat. Uh, pygmy rabbits are one that uh, I'm guessing very few people have have heard of. Right. So they're they're pretty cryptic. So they actually are um, one of I think only two burrowing rabbits. In, um, in North America, and so they burrow, which other rabbits don't do. Um, the other really unique thing about pygmy rabbits is that they, um, so they're cryptic, right? So you, you rare to see them, and then they're, they're just a little bit smaller than a cottontail. So most people probably think that they've seen a cottontail if they have seen a pygmy rabbit. Um, and then they, they, unlike most rabbits, so most rabbits like woody parts of plants, and then they spit out leaves and where all the toxins are. Pygmy rabbits are the opposite, so they actually don't like the woody parts. They'd rather just eat the leaves, and so they've, <clears throat> unlike other rabbits, can handle sort of this 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 toxic plant and the leaves and and feed on it and and do pretty well with it. Hmm. Very interesting. Very interesting. So, <clears throat> I'm hoping you can kind of explain a little bit of uh, a little bit about the type of work that you're doing in the field um, with the students that you're working with to collect the the data that mm -hmm. you are gathering for your research and sort of talking specifically about the sage grouse, um, you know, how are you tracking these birds using radio telemetry or uh, GPS devices mm -hmm. attached to birds or? So it's a combination of things. So really what we do is we couple with research already being done by state agencies. So they've already 
they've already got collars, both uh, uh, telemetry and GPS collars of identifying where the birds are, what they're doing, are they surviving? And then we just use those locations to try and find where the birds are feeding. And so we um, hopefully, I think, add value to what um, you know, sort of uh, investment is already going on in, in studying these birds. So we're not actually adding anything additional sort of, you know, number of collars or number of birds. We just work with the animals that are already out there. And so we, what we do is we study essentially how birds fuel all the expensive things that they like to do. So like breeding or flying. Um, and we, what we think is that certain habitats contain better food, particularly in winter, than others do. And uh, what the focus primarily has been for agencies is focusing on what habitat and habitat features provide successful breeding and, and brood rearing habitat. So that's in the spring and the summertime. Um, but what we think is what makes a successful reproductive outcome for a bird is actually how they arrive. And then if they arrive in a better physical condition when they go to do these expensive things, that that will sort of benefit them. And so what they do in the wintertime <clears throat> translates directly into how fit they are when they arrive to, to breed. Sure. And so that's how that's our sort of part. And so and what we find is that and we think that that increased sort of, you know, health status and nutritional status come from finding the best plants. And what we found is that these birds are incredible in that they are extremely selective. So they select certain species to feed on. Once they find that species, they select certain patches of that species more than others. Um, and then once they find that patch, there's individual plants within that patch that they'll feed on and others that they won't. And what we find are driving all of that selection at both sort of large landscape scales and then at individual plant scale is this chemistry. So they're selecting for individual plants that have the lowest amount of these toxins and the most amount of, of protein or nutrients in them. And it's incredible. I mean, so you'll, you'll walk and you'll see tracks of these birds on the ground um, where there's snow and you'll go, oh, they've been feeding here. There's, you know, poop pellets all over the place. And then there'll be, you know, five or six plants that they have just, you know, there's like a hundred bite marks on them. And you can see these sort of beautiful little clips that the birds have just fed from the plant. Um, and then ones right next to it that are, you know, the sort of twigs are intertwined that they don't touch. And um, when we compare those things, the ones that they feed on have these fewer toxins in them and more nutrients. Huh. And somehow they they detect it and then they respond to it. That is, that's fascinating. Mm -hmm. And uh, you kind of touched on... Um, some of the conservation implications of, of this research that you're doing, but which I definitely want to get to. But before we get there, I just I want to talk just a little bit about the physiology of what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Like, how are these birds processing? Like, what what are the chemicals um, that are present in sagebrush, and how are the grouse dealing with those? toxins. Right. So I guess I would tell your audience, if you find a sagebrush plant, grab some leaves, squish it up in your hands and smell it. So the smell of sagebrush, or if you've ever been out in the sagebrush up in the Great Basin and it rains, <clears throat> there's this aroma and those are volatile compounds called monoterpenes. And this is probably a cue that birds use to smell. So when I first got into working with sagegrass, I'd only worked with mammals that have a very good keen sense of smell. And people had told me, well, birds can't smell. And I thought, it seems strange. I think there's quite a few birds that smell, <laughs> like vultures and mm -hmm. seabirds. <laughs> so yeah. I thought, well, if it's important to them, they, they might be able to smell. And so we actually think that they can smell these chemical defenses, and that's probably one cue that they use to decide what they're going to feed on. So that's part of it. We, haven't, we don't know that that's the case, but there's other studies that show birds 
<clears throat> do smell and they respond to these volatiles in other plants. And so we think that's a potential mechanism. Um, the other thing is that um, if you taste the leaves and don't taste too many of them, but put a leaf in your mouth and it's extremely bitter and different species will have different smells and different bitterness. And we who don't feed on this can tell. So that's usually how we identify some of our species in, this, in the field is that we smell and taste them and we go, oh yeah, this is species A and this is species B. Um, so, um, and then these bitter compounds actually can fluoresce, so they, they emit light in the UV spectrum um, <clears throat> that birds can see in. And so we actually think that the birds can probably see which plants have more chemicals or fewer chemicals in them. Again, we haven't tested that, but it's a, those are probably the two likely possibilities of how birds are finding and detecting which plants have chemicals and which ones don't. Um, and so that, that's probably the, the sort of sensory system of it all. And then their ability to, to handle these toxins, um, once they find a plant, it still has chemicals in it, it just has fewer, um, fewer toxins in it, um, is that we think that they don't absorb the compounds. So there's the same thing that make us resistant to drugs. So someone that might need chemotherapy or have to take a drug um, <clears throat> or even using antibiotics against a, a, a bacteria, the mechanisms that keep chemicals out of cells are the same mechanisms that we think these animals are using to keep chemicals from getting absorbed and from getting into their system. So we think that they um, don't absorb the compounds. The evidence for that is that we see that they poop these compounds out completely unchanged. So what goes in comes of the, so if you look at the chemical structure, it's the exact same thing that gets pooped out. And so that says that they're not absorbing it. Um, and then those that do get absorbed, um, we think that they have very rapid detoxification systems. And so they just metabolize it very quickly and then they excrete it. And so those two things, I think, are the mechanisms that we think these birds are using. And um, to my knowledge, nobody's looked at these mechanisms in a specialist bird, and certainly no one's looked at these mechanisms in sage-grouse. Hmm. And so that's a pretty exciting new area that sort of not only explains their resistance to these chemicals, but they're the same mechanisms that make things that we want to kill, like cancer and bacteria, resistant to the drugs that we might use. And so understanding those mechanisms is just an important basic understanding that we should know about. Yeah, very cool. And yeah, lots of sort of big picture implications yeah. of this research, huh? Yeah. yeah. One of the th neat, I don't know, something that I think is interesting that, that I always tell folks when I sort of take them out into the Great Basin Desert and folks are visiting for the first time and sort of seeing that and, and you know, uh, experiencing those smells that you talk mm -hmm. about for the first time um, is that sagebrush is in the same genus as wormwood and, you know, the... I, I mean, I don't know anything about the specific toxins, but mm -hmm. I'm sure there's similarities, you know, and I've read that, mm -hmm. you know, um, you can actually consume um, certain species of sagebrush and get some of those same, like, psychotropic effects that you supposedly <laughs> get. Not that I've ever tried it, but um, I, I have read that, that, that that's possible. Wormwood, of course, is um, the ingredient, uh, or the traditional ingredient mm -hmm. in, in absinthe that gives it that sort of psychotropic right. effect. Well, and actually, so that sort of, so this is a, a second sort of component of our research. It's not just understanding sage grouse and habitat use and helping with conservation, but, um, we actually are letting sage grouse be, and these other, um, specialists like pygmy rabbits, um, be a sort of natural sort of pharmaceutical screen for us. So they tell us which plants are most likely to have 
toxic things, those those things that the plants that they avoid, we're screening those plants as anti-helminthics and anti-cancer and antimicrobial compounds. So they're they're helping us with drug discovery, um, and then. The, the second component is that the plants that they th- that these specialists avoid, they th- we think what they also have inhibitors of these mechanisms of resistance. And so um, sagebrush probably, an individual plant would have 200 to 300 different unique compounds, and then different subspecies and species and different populations have maybe 10 to, I don't know, 50 novel compounds that another population may not have. Um, And so there's this chemical diversity that's out there that um, we're trying to actually exploit um, and having grouse and rabbits help us find those plants um, for drug discovery. And so that's the sort of added value of of keeping the system and these species around is that they inspire us to find sort of new drugs. And so this is a program that we're doing with College of, of Idaho and it's funded by the National Institute of Health um, to find new drugs in sagebrush. And um, the, the animals are telling us where to look. There's historical sort of indigenous use of sagebrush by um, Native Americans. And sort of that information is being lost. And so not only are we losing human knowledge of this through losing you know, sort of Native, Native tribes, um, but we're losing potentially wildlife that can tell us some of the same information. And so in my view, that's one of the sort of major uh, negative outcomes of um, extinctions of these of these plants and these and these and uh, wildlife is that we lose that knowledge um, of finding new important sort of solutions to problems, including our health problems. Yeah, that is fascinating. And like, yeah, like you said, I mean, you know, uh, of of course we should you know be working to conserve sage grouse mm-hmm. and prevent their extinction because it's you know, such an interesting mm-hmm. species and, you know, it's, it's fun as a, a nature lover and a bird enthusiast to go out and observe them and observe their behavior and, you know, sort of the bizarre um, breeding displays that they do that are so mm-hmm. unbelievably fascinating. Um, but yeah, this whole area of drug discovery and the fact that, you know, we're losing the species that could be helping us, you know, in this very direct way by discovering drugs. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. Right. And I mean, and one of the things so I've, I talk with the public about this and they're always like, oh, what? And then they, they've told me that, you know, their, their kids in classes learn about... Um, sort of the rainforest, right, and all this chemical diversity that's in the rainforest, and that's why we need to conserve the rainforest. But we we have it right here in the Great Basin. So we have all this sort of chemical diversity that um, you look at sagebrush, and most people drive by on the highway and sort of look at it and go, ah, what a wasteland. But it is, the the reason that plant is there is it has battled chemically for, I think it's been here for, you know, millions of years. Um, and it's been fighting all the microbes and the fungi and the other plants and <clears throat> animals that want to eat it. And it does much of that battle through chemicals. And so those chemicals are biologically active. They get into cells. That's why they're effective. Um, and so exploiting sort of that, that sort of evolutionary and ecological knowledge um, could, yeah, have a benefit that's beyond just keeping really cool animals and organisms around. Yeah, and it's fascinating to me that, you know, a lot of people are concerned about you know, there's sort of like this imaginary barrier when there's like a new species versus a subspecies, mm. right? You know, it gains a whole bunch more importance from a conservation perspective. Um, but, you know, what you're saying, I mean, it, it refutes that, right? Because you're saying like, you know, uh, uh, just on the subspecies level and even on the individual level, mm-hmm. you know, there are chemicals that aren't present, maybe in the plant, even like growing right next to it. Right. Um, yeah. Which, and these animals are, are detectors, right? So mm-hmm. instead of needing a million dollar instrument to tell me that, 
these birds actually tell me that. Yeah, fascinating, <laughs> fascinating. Cool. So let's start, let's sort of delve into uh, uh, some of the, the conservation implications mm-hmm. of of this research, and you know what you guys. I mean, what are the conservation implications of you know uh, uh, these behaviors of the sage grouse? The mm-hmm. fact that they're selecting for these specific you know. Uh, 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 subspecies and then also within the subspecies of the, of the sagebrush you know these like sometimes individual plants and sort of you know st- you know mm-hmm. uh, specific stands of sagebrush yeah so i mean i think at, at, a, at a larger scale it what our research is showing is that it's more than just lex right so lex are these breeding grounds where the males show up and they do their displays and they try and attract the female so most of the conservation focus has been on these lex on the um, sort of nesting habitat, brooding habitat, and those are extremely important, and it's important to manage those. Um, the other thing, so what we're showing is that maybe we should also be conserving and thinking about winter habitat as well. Because <clears throat> if they're being selective and you lose what they really like, then you've compromised sort of this food quality is what we're proposing. The other thing is that most of the conservation effort has been focused on cover because it's an easy thing to measure. So you can walk out and someone can look and look at the sagebrush and say, oh, this looks like good cover and this looks like poor cover. People that have worked in these areas, this is an easy thing for land managers to do on the ground, um, is to say this looks like habit- good quality habitat. But um, you, it's really difficult to tell just because so the idea is that not all sagebrush though that's there is, is equal, right? Especially for someone who wants to eat it, for an organism that wants to feed on it. Um, and so it's, I th- people have known that diet quality matters, right? If you talk to anyone that raises animals, right, ranchers in general, right, they know how important food quality is for productivity of livestock. So the same thing applies to these sage grouse, but how do you detect that and then use it and manage it better? And so um, our first step was just sort of identify and convince people that, yes, diet quality matters to grouse. Um, And what we're developing now are um, sort of spectral fingerprints that can be done with handheld devices. So you can sort of pick up either these volatiles or you can pick up these UV reflectant chemicals and you can detect how much nitrogen's in there. And people have done this in agriculture. So there's, they're called near-infrared spectrometers, and they scan alfalfa, and they say, oh, you, we can charge X amount because you have you know, more nitrogen and more protein in your alfalfa than this other group does. And so it's been used in agriculture for a long time, and so what we are trying to do is, is demonstrate and validate that you can use those same spectral fingerprints to say this is good food quality sagebrush and this is poor food quality sagebrush. So that helps people do two things. Now you can say, not only is there sagebrush here, but it's good food. Maybe we should prioritize and conserve that. It also provides you, because um, the sort of food quality is um, heritable, it helps you find now seed sources that you can use for restoration. So, um, you know, there's there's billions of dollars that get put into reseeding after fires um, for restoration. And in general, it's the plant that has the most seed that people go out and collect it, and they shake the plant, and they collect all those seeds, and they give it to the BLM, and, and it's very difficult to know which type of seed you're getting. And so not only is there interest in saying, oh, we should select species A or species B for this, which they're, they're doing, um, but we can say, how about this population where we know sage-grouse like to feed on it? Let's take seed from those plants, and let's restore it. So we're, we're sort of on the verge of, of having the information to help agencies have that knowledge to be able to do that type of conservation. So it's a more directed functional restoration and conservation approach. So it's not just let's make sure sagebrush is there. It's make sure let's we're helping them make sure that it's the right type and the best type of sagebrush for 
grouse and rabbits and pronghorn that want to feed on it. And I also want to point out that the same plants and characteristics that grouse like, sheep and cattle and mule deer and elk like those same things. So the, the things that grouse avoid, those animals also avoid it. And so not only are you benefiting sort of food for, for sage-grouse, but you're benefiting food for, for um, in the rangeland for both game species, big game species, and um, for, for livestock. Right. And so these other species that you're talking about, you know, both the livestock species and the game, um, you know, aside from pronghorn, these are species that that um, that maybe rely on sagebrush during certain parts of the mm-hmm. year, um, even though it's not sort of the primary right. food source. It's still important right. for these species. Mm-hmm. So um, the, yeah, and they're probably feeding, you right. know, only on these patches of sagebrush that have lower toxin levels, maybe, right? Yeah, so, so the, all the other species are sort of more generalist mm-hmm. in the wintertime, so they're, they're feeding, they're taking small bites of sagebrush mm-hmm. along with, you know, bitter brush or whatever mm-hmm. the plants are out there. Um, but they're diversifying, but they're still, I mean, in, in general, I don't know of a study where someone has found that an animal doesn't care at all about these toxins. Right. Um, and so whether it's a captive study or it's a field study, I mean, higher concentrations, animals will avoid it. Um, yep. They can eat it, they just mm-hmm. eat less of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think in general, if you can find um, <clears throat> sources of sagebrush um, that are higher quality food, it benefits all the organisms, whether you're specialists or generalists or your domestic species or your wild species, it helps all of them have better food. Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. And yeah, like you just sort of laid out, like really important management implications mm-hmm. um, um, going on there with with that research so what i'm wondering is are you um, do you have or are you trying to find direct evidence that these areas that have you know these higher quality uh, higher concentrations of you know the the high quality sagebrush with lower levels of toxins does that translate into areas where we're seeing either lower rates of decline or mm. you know no declines in that sort of localized population of sagebrush yeah so this is this is the tough part so um, the again this is what requires sort of a remote sensing ability to be able to monitor diet quality at larger spatial scales so right now We've done it over a couple of years. We go out in the field. We collect all these plants. We bring them back in the lab. We spend, my students would, would, would know these numbers better, but I would say hundreds and thousands <laughs> of hours analyzing the sagebrush that we bring in and then say, oh, this is high quality. This is low quality. So there's a delay in what, what when we identify high quality and low quality food to then being able to do something about it and linking that to, to, to grouse productivity mm-hmm. or success. And so um, I think that we have an opportunity, I, th- I would say in the next couple of years, we'll be able to do that at larger spatial scales and say, because um, you can, so we're actually using unmanned aerial vehicles to map dietary quality. You can use satellite imagery to map dietary quality. People aren't getting satellite images in the wintertime, so as soon as we start getting more winter imagery, we can probably sort of identify higher quality patches. And then you can say, We've been monitoring LEC A for you know 20 years. It does really well. What is the habitat quality around it? Not just in terms of cover, which they know, but what does the dietary quality around this habitat look like? Um, the other sort of direct measures that we're trying to do, because I mean, ideally you want to link, <clears throat> does higher quality food translate to more productive sage-grouse populations? Um, and we don't do the population side, but what we're trying to show is that um, <clears throat> if you have more continuous high quality food, the birds potentially don't have to move as far away from these leks to go feed while they're breeding. Um, they might, even when the birds are nesting, 
they're feeding on forbs and all these other succulent, tasty plants, but they do eat some sagebrush still. So if that stuff is higher quality and it's closer, now birds don't have to move as far between their breeding grounds and their nesting grounds and their brood rearing habitats. And so that decreases their costs. Um, we are trying to link, so right now all, all we have are males that we're doing this on, but we actually are, we know where males forage during the day. And then we're, what we're proposing is that um, males that feed in higher quality patches during the day, we think those males will display better and longer on the leks. So male, these, these struts and displays are extremely expensive. So it's, um, uh, uh, I can't remember the numbers somewhere. So uh, 13 to 17 times greater expenditures when they're displaying compared to when they're just resting. Um, and so this is really expensive for these males. And so this is a study in collaboration with um, UC Davis in Wyoming. Um, <clears throat> and so we know where the birds are feeding, we know that dietary quality, and then we're measuring their display effort on the luck. And so this is going to be our closest direct link to diet quality translates to reproductive effort. Um, and uh, so we'll know in a couple of years because where those studies are, are just now in, in the mix. And so uh, it takes a long time to build how does diet quality influence populations? Um, this is a difficult thing for long-lived species because um, you can have lots of things that, that occur in between when the animal ate something and then what actually happens to the population. So th those are difficult and challenging things, but I think we're building a case that food quality matters at small time scales, and I think that that's going to translate to longer time scales. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you bring up this, you know, uh, this important point. Um, you know, if 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 we're to look at the big picture of sagegrass conservation across the Great Basin, across the Great Basin region, um, you know, there's no controversy over whether or not sagegrass populations are declining. You know, everybody agrees that that you know they've been declining pretty consistently for um, a number of decades. Um, but there is a lot of controversy <clears throat> over what the sort of the <clears throat> primary drivers of uh, these population declines are. Um, and, you know, here you are introducing this whole nother issue that probably most people, and I would guess, you know, most land managers, at least at this point mm -hmm. in time, you know, aren't thinking about it all. It's not even on the table, right? <laughs> um, you know, most of what you hear about um, are, is uh, just the existence of sagebrush habitat, you know, mm -hmm. and, and you talk about, people talk about the quality of sagebrush habitat um, in relation to the amount of cover it provides mm -hmm. um, without really thinking about, right. you know, the level of toxins in the plants. Um, and, you know, that's the big one, obviously, and the issue over cheatgrass invasion and, you know, increased fire return intervals um, obviously is playing a, a, a huge impact and, mm -hmm. you know, sort of the big picture of um, sort of the, you know, the quality of uh, uh, and, you know, the amount of uh, sagebrush habitat that's out there, which is obviously going to have an impact on, impact on sage-grouse. Uh, but then you also have this uh, uh, issue over increases in raven populations, um, which uh, seems to be something that um, a lot of ranchers um, in particular, but I think also just people in general, people who are concerned about um, uh, uh, declines in, say, you know, uh, people who are concerned about um, their land use practices changing as a result of mm -hmm. um, sagebrush being on the landscape um, and these conservation um, 
efforts that that folks are trying to implement. They're worried that their land use practices are going to change, and they're sort of blaming um, the Raven for uh, uh, these declines. Which you know, in some areas, you know, talking to Peter Coates from USGS, you know, he explains that in, in some areas, Raven populations are twelve hundred percent what they mm. were in the nineteen sixties. In certain areas, so like that's obviously going to have an impact mm-hmm. um, because you know it's the top nest predator for for sage grouse. So you know these dramatic increases in raven populations are certainly having an impact. Um, but it's this question of you know uh, or this rec- it's this recognition of you know all the different factors that are affecting sage grouse mm-hmm. populations, and it seems like you know certain individual groups are placing all the blame on one particular issue and not recognizing that this is this huge sort of like multifaceted issue, and you have to deal with you know the dramatic increases in raven populations. Mm-hmm. You have to deal with um, the declines in sagebrush habitat as a result of cheatgrass invasion and increased fire return intervals. Um, and now you're saying, you know, we also have to think about, you mm-hmm. know, the, the quality of the sagebrush that's out there in terms of, you know, the level of toxicity that, you know, individual stands of plants have. Mm-hmm. Um, so <laughs> I guess my question for you would be, um, you know, what, what would you say to these sort of interest groups? You know, this is, I mean, this is something that we see in a lot of wildlife conservation mm-hmm. issues is this polarization um, of these issues, you know, and, and certain groups latching on to like one component of an issue and not being able to recognize that, you know, it, maybe it's a little bit more complicated than you're giving uh, credit for. You know, what, what would you say to, um, you know, maybe a, a bird enthusiast who, mm-hmm. you know, sort of refuses to recognize the importance of increased raven populations because, you know, ravens are a bird too that they like to watch or, you know, a rancher who, you know, has this interest in, in continuing to, you know, the, the land use practices that, that they've been sort of implementing for, for decades. You know, what would you say to folks like this, you know, who are maybe on either side of the spectrum to maybe bring them a little closer to the center or would you, you know, yeah, I, I, <laughs> so this was, this is tough. And I mean, I think, I mean, I, I think it's easy to point at one thing, especially when, um, there's potentially an easy management solution, right? So you can say, look, ravens are the problem. Let's go kill a bunch of ravens. Right? Mm-hmm. So, so that, but that's the proximate right. issue and not the ultimate issue. Right. So mm-hmm. the ultimate cause of all this is, change in habitat use overall. So it's, in general, loss of habitats, greater development, greater infrastructure that's creating potentially this problem of more ravens. So right. are people willing to change that? Maybe unlikely. Um, uh, loss of habitat, right? So this is a product of not just how the land gets used, but it's climate change and it's fires and it's everything else that comes with it. So um, and then you, you throw in our work that says, oh, hey, by the way, it's not just about what's there, it's the quality of it. And so this is, this is the challenge. These, these grouse use a large area of land. That's probably why it's, this is so controversial, because it's going to, their status impacts a lot of different stakeholders in a lot of different states. So it's not an isolated problem. Um, the other thing is that uh, these birds use, they're, they're generalist across the landscape, right? So in wintertime, they need sagebrush, but they don't just need one type of sagebrush. Maybe they need tall stuff in case it snows, and they also need low stuff that's that's more palatable. 
They need different, completely different habitats when they go to, to breed. So these lux are in, often in very different habitats, these open areas. Then they need completely different places where they where they rear their broods, right? That has completely different things for chicks. And so you have this complex life cycle, in a way, that requires very different types of habitat types. And so it's all connected. So by solving a raven problem doesn't solve the sage-grouse problem. Um, and so I don't know what the solution is, but, but you can't point a finger at one group or one problem and say, if we solve that, we solve everything, because um, it's unlikely to work. And so I guess what I would say to these groups is... Um, <laughs> uh, get, get into a room together, right? And, and spend time developing sure. trust and, and having a communication that's hopefully free of some of the biases. And, 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 and I think in general, most groups recognize that um, what's good for ranchers and what's good for sage-grouse is kind of the same thing. Um, it's having healthy landscapes. And so um, I, w- I would say in general, <clears throat> in my discussions with, with landowners, and because th- there are existing local working groups throughout the West, um, these have been amazing sort of uh, uh, opportunities to get people into the same room. And, and what I've heard is that when they all started, they weren't a happy place to be. <laughs> um, and now they're, they're places where people come to the table and they actually have discussions about what to do. Um, I've gone to these. I've given talks at these. And the, the, it's, it's an amazing, welcoming, um, receptive, um, talented group of people that all show up. And, and landowners above <clears throat> probably all others that I've talked to in the public get it. They, they get what a han- healthy landscape and healthy, productive animals are all about. Um, they're on board with this, um, and so they're actually should be our advocates for for, and they are our advocates. It's a matter of how that discussion gets um, conveyed to them and and uh, and to the public in general. And so I, I'd say that um, boy, scientists should get more involved, and and scientists should get involved in a way that um, uh, you know you sort of you have a conversation over coffee and not over a manuscript. That's not the way to, to, yeah. to sort of talk to people and, and um, solve problems. Uh, and you have to build trust, and that takes time, and few people have that. Um, so, you know, I, I look at, we go out in the field, and we meet with landowners, and that's several days of my time, but it's <clears throat> more worth it than probably anything I do. Um, and so doing more of that, I think, is, is probably the solution. But you've got to get the agencies, the researchers, the public, and they all have to sort of come together and leave their egos and biases at the t- at the door mm-hmm. and and start conversations that matter because it's not just about sage grouse it's about they're connected to everything else right yeah. so they go and it's just a matter of time before the next species goes mm-hmm. and so loss of all these things isn't just loss of you know sort of grouse it's loss of like i said new drugs that mm-hmm. we could discover new solutions that we could discover and so having that discussion about it's not about the grouse it's about having sustainable landscapes, um, I think more people are probably invested and interested in that solution than they are about the solution of keeping sage-grouse around. Sure, and, and that makes sense, you know, and, and I think it's, it's it's definitely good to hear that, at, at least in certain areas, okay. that, that these uh, discussions are happening, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, it's... It, I don't know. As, as much you know, uh, uh, as much polarization of the issue um, uh, has taken place. I think you're right that you know there are a lot of um, 
good sort of groups that have popped up, I think, you know, since 2010 and this ESA Mm -hmm. issue came into play, um, which I'll just sort of briefly explain, um, you know, back in 2010, just to put this in context, back in 2010, um, it was determined that the greater sage grouse was an eligible candidate for listing on the major species list, Um, but it was precluded from listing um, because it was determined that other species took priority. So basically there are other species that, you know, are facing graver threats than the Mm -hmm. sage-grouse is currently. So even though it warrants listing, they're not going to list it. And they're basically put off the decision for five years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so 2015, um, this is the year when it's going to come up for review again and sort of another decision will be made as to whether or not... um, it will be listed on the endangered species list um, this year. Um, and I think since 2010, you know, uh, uh, that decision got a lot of publicity. And it seems to me like a lot of groups have sort of popped up just since then in the last five years, you know, with the goal of, you know, let's see what we can do. Let's bring these mm-hmm. agencies together to try to figure out if we can, you know, uh, uh, fix this before it comes up for you again because we don't want it to be on the endangered Mm -hmm. species list um which you know uh i don't know i mean that that maybe maybe that shouldn't be you know sort of the ultimate goal is to prevent Mm -hmm. it from getting listed but i think maybe it's had some some Mm -hmm. beneficial effects for the species and for sagebrush habitat Yes. I mean, do you think, I mean, is that an accurate assessment? You're, you know, I'm sort of looking at this from the outside, Mm -hmm. right? But you're the ones who are, you're the one who's going to these meetings and and sort of seeing what's happening Mm -hmm. from the inside. I mean, does that seem like an accurate representation of what's happening? Like, do you think, like, this issue with the Endangered Species Act um, and the potential for it to get listed, I mean, do you think that that actually has been bringing groups together and having a positive impact? Yeah, I mean, I, I, so what I know about these local working groups is they actually formed before, the, many of them, before 2010. So okay. they, they've actually been around, um, because when I first arrived, they were already, that was 2008, they were already going. And so this has been an issue that states have known about for a while. Um, and I think part of that comes from the Gunnison sage-grouse, so that... that um, species was before the greater sage grouse. Um, and so that sort of st- set the stage for what might be happening. And so, um, you know, oftentimes I think, and again, this isn't what I, I don't, I don't work on endangered species in general. I don't work on listings. I don't do the sort of, um, uh, uh, that conservation management side. Um, but, but I would say in, in general, uh, there's good things and bad things that probably come with listing and the fear of listing, right? So the bad things is that it creates polarity and um, conflict, um, but it also creates a discussion, which is the good part of it. Um, and it gets people going, wow, uh, if it gets listed, it's going to be worse, so let's try and do some things now. Um, <clears throat> in general, what, what maybe happens, and it's probably because... Um, as things get more and more of a conservation concern, more and more research goes into it, and then we learn more and more about it. Um, and at that stage, then you say, oh, look at all the things that we could do to maybe prevent this. And usually that occurs at a later stage. So it's sort of, you know, you're, you're putting out a fire rather than preventing it. You're, you know, trying to sort of um, deal with the disease rather than doing preventative care. Right. Um, and so, you know, I'd say that that's a sort of um, plug for basic science. On, on organisms that aren't game species, right? Um, right. Uh, and aren't sexy species. So wolves and grouse, sage grouse are sexy species that people want to study. Um, but there's a lot of other organisms that if we learn something about them early, 
maybe we don't lose them and they don't become endangered. And right. so um, that, that, that's sort of an, and uh, so I got kind of off, off track a little bit. <laughs> well, let um, me say this, yeah. you know, because you're kind of going in this direction is, you know, like is, you know, now the beginning, you know, uh, uh, we're right at the beginning of 2015, this decision is going to get made this year. I mean, is it, is it too late? You know, I mean, uh, I mean, should it have, should it have been? I mean, obviously, it was, it was determined that it, it you know, was a, a, a candidate for listing, mm-hmm. but it was precluded because other species, you know, took priority. Other species that are more endangered. Um, right. I mean, does that? I don't. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know if it's too late. I mean, I think uh, the the. Mm. I don't, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I, I would say that uh, in general, people have been, in my view, doing good things for sage-grouse for, for quite some time, including mm-hmm. federal and state agencies, mm-hmm. um, and including, I would say, landowners and the public. So there's been a, a, a lot of really good things. Yeah. The, the problem is that a lot of things are stacked against these birds. Yeah. Like, you can't really control climate. Mm-hmm. Fire is a tough one to control. Mm-hmm. Um, development energy development, all of these things are, are components that sort of are outside of oftentimes what managers, both state and federal, can do. Um, and so that's the tough part. And yeah. so even though there's been a lot of effort, and I think really good effort that's been put into um, managing these species and many others, um, even if they had been listed 10 years ago, who knows? It may not have been enough. Um, and so that, those are that's, that's, the, that's the tough part is that... Uh, you kind of don't know what it's going to do. I'd say in general, listing of them, yeah, is going to come with good and bad for, for all parties. But um, it it may be, a, in my opinion, a good way to protect a really large area of the West, not just for sage-grouse, but for the next thing that's behind them and in a selfish way to keep all these resources both chemically and um, sort of uh, uh, organismally, keep them intact. And mm-hmm. so... If we, if sage grouse don't benefit from this, um, I think having conservation and protecting and keeping healthy lands um, is going to going to benefit everyone in the long run. Yeah, yeah. So, just a sort of follow question to that, you know, uh, uh, just because one of the groups that sort of most seems like is it, you know most concerned about what might happen um, if. The greater sage grouse were to be listed um, on the Endangered Species Act are ranchers, um, which uh, I, I guess maybe I don't know. Maybe I think there's a little bit of a disconnect there for me, you know, because we were talking earlier about you know how like what's good for sage grouse is going to be good for um, cattle and livestock mm-hmm. in, in in a lot of instances, right? You know, those cattle like they're looking for those patches of sagebrush that have the least number of toxins just like the grouse are um so like what and i maybe this is you know i don't don't know if you would know the answer to this question but like what is you know what would actually change you know i i guess i have difficulty understanding you know the concern of the ranchers you know like what land use practices would change if the sage grouse were listed I don't know from the perspective that of a question. rancher. I don't. I don't know that. I mean, I what I do know from go, again going to these local working groups, and these mm-hmm. are landowners that are engaged yeah. in the process. And so maybe they're a different subset of who's out there. Yeah. Um, they they're already doing the things that are that they need to be doing. So yeah. there's already regulations on 
and I don't know the specifics, but I know that that, that grazing is already regulated, mm-hmm. and it's at a level that it, it's a sustainable yeah. amount where livestock and sage grouse are likely to coexist. Yeah, um, and so I, I feel like that in general they're they're already working with agencies to do the right thing. Um, I, I think where again, this is my personal opinion and outside of my my expertise of science and any of these other things, but I, I think that. Uh, the the key is that everyone sort of has to participate. So you can't be telling, in my view, ranchers that they can't do this, they can't graze here and they can't graze that, while at the same time you're letting energy companies come in and build roads and build infrastructure that has no negative consequences for, for wildlife and allow hunters to shoot sage-grouse. I mean, to me, it, it, everyone has to play and participate, and there's going to be compromise on all sides. Yep. And if anything, I sort of feel like the, the ranchers are already doing yeah. a lot of, of, of what they, pro- they, they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're, in my view, and in my communication with them, again, but I don't talk with, with, with uh, you know, sort of energy companies. I haven't right. had discussions with them. Right. Um, they're, they're doing the right thing. Um, and so everyone else sort of has to play. And I, and I think that that's one of the things that getting listed will help federal agencies maybe manage all those components. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, I think the ranchers are actually already doing a lot of really good things. Yeah. And it's probably just a situation where there's a sort of a very vocal minority yeah, right? of ranchers like who anything. are very worried about mm-hmm. what land use practices might change. When in reality, most mm-hmm. ranchers out there have already implemented right. whatever land use changes, you know, would be associated mm-hmm. with the listing of the species. Um, so I kind of, I just want to sort of close things out here with a few thoughts from you um, on what folks, you know, for, for folks who are wildlife enthusiasts and, you know, who want to learn more about sage grouse um, and sort of do whatever, you know, learn something that they might be able to do to maybe help the species, um, you know, what would you suggest, you know, like what, what sort of direction would you point people in to, um, uh, who want to get out there and, um, and, and help, um, in the recovery of the sage grouse? Right. So, um, I'd say be part of the discussion, but, um, you know, be a small mouth and big ears at those discussions. So um, it's fine having opinions, but um, so attend these local working groups. They're open to the public. So go to them, get involved. They're in every county, as far as I know. I mean, I know of at least <clears throat> the Oahis, the um, Magic Valley. So they're, they're all over the place and they're they're in Nevada, they're in Wyoming, they're, they're everywhere. And so if you're a member of the public or you're a wildlife advocate, be involved in these, but, but um, you know, be respectful of people. So that's how you build trust and that's how you sort of move things. It's not by, you know, being a, a, a conflict maker. And so I'd say, you know, go to these things and be quiet and listen and learn something from them. Um, that would be my first thing. Uh, the, the second is I would go out and um, see this amazing bird in this amazing habitat. And if you already are convinced, take somebody who's not convinced um, so every person that I've taken out in the field with me that has never seen sagebrush, so I take teachers out and students out, um, and, you know, they're sort of, especially students, these are high school, GK through 12 students, they're, you know, used to looking at their phones all day. And it's an incredible experience, and, and seeing and smelling and tasting what's out there in, in the wild is an amazing experience. And so, you know, why do we care about friends and family and, you know, where we grew up, it's because we're connected to it. And so I'd say, you know, get connected and, and take two friends and take another two friends and they'll tell two friends and then we'll be more connected with 
our environment, um, which will hopefully make us more interested in protecting it. So that would be the other thing. Um, and I would say that, you know, sort of, uh, so the public seeing these things and then scientists and people that have knowledge about these systems help the public see the value. So, um, and it's beyond just, this is a awesome looking bird that does an amazing dance and looks like it's from, you know, another planet. It's, it's beyond that. It's, it's um, sort of my role is to convince people that, you know, losing sage grouse is the start and probably not the end of what, what a long list of wildlife and species and resources that we could lose. And that these things have value, both economic value um, and they have sort of medicinal value. And so losing those things, that's really important. So scientists that know the value outside of aesthetic value need to share that with the public. And so um, I'm happy to take people out in the field. I'm happy to, to showcase this. I'm happy that there's programs like this that hopefully reach an audience that may not have thought of sagebrush and sage grouse in the same way and maybe that changes people's view on the value of it absolutely and and i i hope that it will i mean you've absolutely changed my view of of the species you know and i've been working to produce this documentary about sage grouse conservation for the last year year and a half um but yes uh this has been a fascinating conversation um and i've learned a lot and hopefully our audience will um learn a lot from this as well. Great. So thanks a lot for coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Well, thanks for making it happen. Yep, you bet. <laughs> okay, that was our interview with Associate Professor of Biology at Boise State University, Jen Forby. And what a fascinating conversation. I'm just continually amazed by this species of bird. I was lucky enough to spend a few days out in the field in northern Nevada shooting for our short documentary, and I was blown away by this animal's bizarre and otherworldly breeding displays, but I must say I'm almost equally amazed by Jen's explanation of how the sage-grouse is helping researchers find new pharmaceutical drugs in sagebrush plants. Uh, these are chemical compounds produced by the plant that could serve as anti-cancer or antimicrobial drugs, um, but not every sagebrush plant is going to produce these potentially beneficial chemical compounds. And the sage-grouse is helping Jen and other researchers figure out which individual plants to target in their research by utilizing uh, the sage-grouse's unique ability to detect the presence of certain toxins in the plants. Uh, just fascinating stuff. Um, and in addition to this important research that Jen is conducting, um, she, she also recognizes the importance of sharing this information with the public, which is extremely important. Uh, Jen is a big advocate for finding alternate reasons for people to care about wildlife species, um, and the sage-grouse is a perfect, perfect example of this. Uh, not everyone is going to agree that the greater sage-grouse as a species has inherent value, um, but if you explain that this is an animal that can help us identify new pharmaceutical drugs right here in the Great Basin ecosystem, uh, you're going to catch the attention of a whole new audience with your message. Um, and that's exactly what Jen is doing. Jen also shared some excellent ideas about how folks can get involved in the discussion surrounding greater sage-grouse conservation by participating in local working groups that have been set up across the Great, Bas across the Great Basin region. Um, we'll have links on the show notes page for this episode to help folks find working groups in that in their area. Um, and we'll also have links with more information about Jen's research up on that show notes page, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC10. 
That's wildlensinc.org slash blog slash EOC10. And if you're listening to this podcast for the first time and you haven't yet subscribed, I will recommend that you head over to the iTunes store or your podcatcher of choice and click subscribe. We release new episodes on the first and third Wednesdays of every month, and these will automatically download to your device as soon as they're released if you subscribe to the show. So big thank you to all of our listeners today. Uh, I am your host, Matt Podolsky, signing off.